0: 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves from ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord... Let them be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus, be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the last message in the book of 1 Corinthians. And next week we begin uh, preaching through the book of Matthew. The title today uh, encompasses the verses 15 through 24. And the title is Devotion to God and to the Saints. Now, we've learned so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that there are men like Paul, Apollos, Timothy, who who have devoted themselves to the gospel ministry, and they have done so at great peril to their own lives. Paul says it is risky to do so. There are always, uh, he said, adversaries to which he had to deal with, faithful preachers, understand that they are the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. They understand that they are the very spokesmen of Christ and that Jesus actually does preach through them through their human preaching. It's hard for human preachers to understand that, but the Scripture says that Jesus preaches through his preachers. Human preachers can't do you any good. The only preaching that can do you any good is Jesus' preaching but he uses uh, frail men as a mechanism by which he uh, preaches to the world. In being devoted to God, these preachers recognize that they are in subjection uh, to much conflict, as we have said. It comes with the territory. Uh, They understand uh, there is much at risk, uh, that their own lives oftentimes are at jeopardy, One of the uh, great tasks uh, that preachers need to understand in being devoted to God, and we're talking about what it means for preachers to be devoted to God and what it means for every Christian to be devoted to God, that's going to be the focus today, both preachers and all Christians. Now, one of the ways that we understand how the Lord uh, expects his preachers to be devoted to him is the fact that they have to preach. Jeremiah said in Isaiah, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul said that, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I uh, Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 3. And this is a section that uh, is quite ominous for preachers to, to hear. But it is very true because it's found in the word of God. Look at e- uh, Ezekiel chapter 3 beginning at verse 17. Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. In that regard, this is what every preacher devoted to God has to understand. They have an obligation to preach to men. To warn men of the peril that they are in if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they must preach that gospel and they are held accountable to that. And it's quite clear, God says, you don't warn the wicked and they die in a way that we don't fully understand. God says, I'm going to hold their blood at your hand for failing to do what you were called to do. It was the last thing, the last message that my great-great-grandfather William Otis gave in that little chapel in England when he knew he was leaving for America, and uh, he knew he would never see these dear folk again, and he preached on this passage. And he says, for 30 years I have uh, sought to warn you of the way of life, to show you the Savior. And he says, I will see your face no more, but uh, Lord willing, I will see some of your faces in glory. But he understood that was his task. And that's what it means to be devoted as, as preachers to God. Jesus's faithful preachers, they're going to tell you the way it really is, whether you like to hear it or not. Now, that's the only preacher that's worth hearing, someone who tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. And sometimes, telling the truth can be very costly, such as you can lose your head, like John the Baptist, who told Herod the king, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. That was not very popular. When he says no, it's not lawful for you, he says it's against the, the law of Moses, and uh, you are king, but you are not above the law of God. And John the Baptist called him out. And, of course, it cost him his own life. But virtually, when you think about the apostles, all of them met a martyr's death, with the exception that we know of, the apostle John. Of course, when Peter and John, when Jesus spoke with them, uh, Jesus made it clear that uh, Peter would meet a martyr's death. And Peter uh, wanted to say, well, what about this guy, John? And Jesus says, none of your business about John. He says, what I'll do with him. But John was not without his persecution. He was uh, banished to the Isle of Patmos by the Roman Empire, and that's where he received the vision for the book of Revelation. Uh, John had his encounters and persecutions. Again, preachers who are devoted to God, are devoted to their master no matter what the cost. In fact, that's an oath that we take, ministers take. We have to take, and if you ever seen an ordination, it says, do you pledge yourself to be faithful to this gospel, even at the risk of your own life? And we have to affirm that. So, <clears throat> they tell it like it is. They understand that they serve God, that they are his servants. So being devoted to God means ultimately that one is concerned about pleasing God and not men. And we don't lose lose sleep over that fact. We don't worry about it. Uh, Those who are devoted to God, whether they are preachers or we're going to see any other Christian, uh, they are not out to win popularity contests. They are out to... Say and to do what the Lord commands. Now, in this, if you look, notice in our text, and the reason I mentioned that, look, look at the text. Verse fifteen talks about. Now I urge you, brethren, that you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. I will mention that a little bit more in a moment. So we're talking about the idea of being devoted to the Lord, whether it's a preacher or any other Christian. And, for example, that word devoted is a significant word because if you were to look at that Greek word, the way it's used in the New Testament, it's often translated as appointed, ordained. It's the same word that's used over in Acts 13.48 where it says, All those who were ordained to eternal life believed. So the New American Standard translates this Greek word there as devoted, which is fine, because it conveys the idea of commitment, being sold out to. That's the idea. The idea of determining to put yourself in a position to serve Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So to devote oneself to God is... A, a determination to fix your position to side with Jesus no matter what. So we could say that the word commitment is a good synonym to being devoted to God. And, as we mentioned, being devoted to God doesn't, isn't by any means restricted to preachers, but it's expected of all Christians. We see here that Stephanus, um, Fortunatus, and... Uh, Echicus, they weren't uh, viewed as apostles as such, but it says they devoted themselves for the ministry to the saints. So being devoted to God is to be devoted to your Savior as Lord. And many Christians, professing Christians, fail to recognize this fact that they are not only, as Romans says, they are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, in the Christian community over the past several years, there are some that want to make a distinction between receiving Jesus as Savior and then receiving Jesus as Lord. And some say, well, you receive him as Savior now, and sometimes it may be a year or so later that you receive him as Lord. Well, the problem with that is you don't see that taught in the Scriptures. The Bible talks about when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive him as Lord. You receive him as Lord of your life. He calls all the shots. It's not an option. And probably the most conspicuous place in the scripture to indicate what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is what Jesus himself said. And it probably was a rude awakening to the people who were following him. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. And look at, at verse 25 and following. Now, Jesus was a very popular figure, as you know, because he was the great healer. And people, a lot of people were being attracted to Jesus because he was, in fact, the miracle worker. I mean, if you wanted to be healed of virtually anything, you came to Jesus and wherever he went, he was mobbed by people. So now here in this great following of all these people to Jesus, Jesus, it says, turns to the multitude, and this is what he says to them. Verse 26 and following. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 to encounter one against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if salt has become tasteless, With what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I'm sure to that crowd, they did not like what they heard. Jesus straightforward says, this is what it means to be my disciple. I remember as a young Christian in college, being confronted with that passage, and the first time reading that, thinking about, wow, that's pretty hardcore. And uh, I remember I was struggling with the fact I lived only 15 miles from my hometown where I went to college. And every weekend I was just going home for the weekend because I like going home for the weekend. And we already had a campus ministry going. And Uh, I know that guy the head of the campus ministry said, John, have you ever thought about just staying around some, not going home every weekend, maybe once or twice, but, you know, there's a lot of things to be done here. And I'll never forget, we had a Bible study. We happened to have it over at my parents' house. And the Bible study was on that passage. And that was about as convicting. And I remember coming away from that saying, you know, I like going home on weekends, but if, if it's for the better cause of Christ that I don't, then so be it. I will give it up, if that what, what it means to serve Christ. I said I've got to serve, I, whether it's my parents. I love my parents. My brothers went around, but I realized, you know, there, there's a cost uh, at stake here. And if that's what the cost demands, I've got to be willing to pay the cost. Now, the thing about this passage here is about being devoted to, To God, Jesus says, this is what it means to be a Christian. He's not talking about an elevated level of Christians, a more spiritual Christian. He's basically saying, this is what it means to be my disciple, period. Now, Romans 10 says that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians have to be sold out to Jesus. That's what it means to be devoted to Him. I'll never forget uh, one time I heard this missionary talk about back when there was an Iron Curtain in Europe and uh, in one of the countries it was risky to be a Christian and these Christians were worshiping in a church and all of a sudden the doors burst open. These guys with uniforms come in with machine guns and they said, alright now, anybody that doesn't love Jesus or what are willing to die for your Jesus, Get out now. A bunch of people got up and left. Soldiers went over and locked the door, put the guns down and said, We're just one of you. just want to be sure we we're worshiping with like-minded people. Now, that, that methodology is not the greatest. But, you know, there were some who were willing to die and get shot, and others, nah I don't think it's worth it. The thing about it is, you don't know what the cost is, but Jesus says, You've got to count the cost. If he's going to be my disciple, you have to be devoted to me. You have to be sold out to me. So the Christian fixes himself or herself in a position of servitude to the master. The master is being the Lord Jesus. Whatever the master wants, the slave is determined to follow the master. And being devoted to the Lord means to be committed to, To the welfare of other people. And that's what we see. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, that's what Paul says. The household of Stephanas, they were devoted to the ministry to the saints. That was their calling to minister to Christians, to the churches. I like what John Calvin has to say about verses 15 and 16. Um, He put it about as well as anybody. Let me just read to you what John Calvin said about verse 15 and 16. He says, quote, We know from daily experience of what advantage it is that those who should have the highest authority, whom God has adorned with the most distinguished gifts, accordingly if we wish to secure the welfare of the church, let us always take care that honor be conferred upon the good. Let their counsels have the greatest weight. Let others give way to them and allow themselves to be governed by their wisdom. This Paul does in this instance when admonishing the Corinthians to show respect to the household of Stephanus. For God manifests himself to us when he shows the gifts of the Spirit. Hence, if we would not appear to be despisers of God... Let us voluntarily submit ourselves to those on whom God has conferred superior gifts. It was obvious that uh, the household of Stephanus wanted to serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, and strength, and they did so. And Paul says, in other words, they gave themselves to the ministry for the welfare of the church. And he says they need to be shown honor for having done so. In fact, Paul says, and if you look there in verse 18, he says, They have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Apparently, uh, not only the household of Stephanus, but Fortunatus and Achicus, it says here, they were a delegation sent from the church of Corinth to Paul. Now, we know that Paul wrote this from Ephesus, and they came to Ephesus. We know that Aquila and Priscilla have uh, lived in Ephesus because he says, uh, Aquila and Priscilla send greetings to you. Whatever the failures, he says what they've done, look at verse 17, they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Whatever failures there were in the church, maybe uh, this delegation was a worthy delegation from the church of Corinth of such magnitude that Paul says, I was refreshed in spirit when I met this, these uh, godly men who have given themselves, who have devoted themselves to the welfare of the church at large. <clears throat> so what is the Lord trying to teach us in all of this? Well, when men are devoted and dedicated to the Lord, it always shows in a manifestation Of good works to other people. That's how it shows itself. And I mentioned several weeks ago. This passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Which we ought to turn to. Because it's uh, very pertinent. uh, For our message today. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Beginning at verse 1. Now brethren. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, what we understand here is the significance, and we mentioned this several weeks ago, uh, when Paul talked about the contributions being taken up for the needy, in Jerusalem, that these churches in Macedonia, these Gentile people, so were do- so devoted to the Lord Jesus, they begged, Paul, did you notice that? They entreated me, please, let us help the saints. And in reality, they weren't in much better position than those in Jerusalem. Though they had, they they obviously had more because they could contribute some. But the significant thing here is, what was the, what was the attitude that was with these Christians in Macedonia? It says, they first, first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. Any kind of service, whether it's giving financially, or Ministering to people in whatever situation it might be, it always begins first being devoted to the Lord Jesus. Seeing yourself as an instrument of good in the lives of other people. That's where it starts. And so their desire to help out the saints was first because they gave themselves to the Lord. Does that sound familiar? With uh, what Jesus said, what it means to be His disciple. Remember in that passage that I read earlier ago, uh, concerning Luke 14, Jesus says, You give up all your possessions to the Lord. Now, what that means, obviously, is that we don't live as paupers, but it says, You have to, what Jesus was giving at, obviously, was this You have to approach God. Not only with your resources, but with your life like this, with an open hand. Lord, whatever I have, whatever I can do, whatever gifts you have given to me, they're at your service. They're at your service. Not mine, but yours. So in that sense, I don't own, you don't own anything. What you and I have is by the grace of God, is it not? Not. He's the one that's given it. That doesn't deny private ownership at all in an economic sense. But what it means is Christians have the mindset they have to be so devoted to Christ that they are willing to use their gifts, their talents, their financial resources at the disposal of the Lord Jesus, whatever he wants. But it begins with being devoted to. To him first. They gave themselves to the Lord by the will of, and to us by the will of God. First to the Lord and then to others. That is the will of God. Now, when you think about the parable of the good Samaritan, if there was ever a parable that's one of the most famous of Jesus' parables, it was the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You have this man who was mugged by robbers, uh, beaten and left for dead by the roadside. And you had all these, quote, religious Jews go by, see the man bleeding there and doing nothing. And some, you know, what the law uh, said, that if uh, you weren't to touch a dead body. So some were concerned, well, he said, he might be dead. I'm not going to see if he's alive or he's dead. I don't want to be, after all, touch an unclean thing. So I'm not going to see if he really needs help. So all these religious Jews pass him by. And guess who the hero is? Is that no good worth nothing Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans were not viewed in a very kind way among the Jews. The Samaritans were were half-breeds. Uh, they were the uh, remaining uh, uh, <clears throat> generations after the captivity of the northern kingdom, when the Assyrians took to the northern kingdom. Uh, those tribes were dispersed, and over a period of time, uh, intermarriage with the Assyrians, uh, they were a type of people that were not looked on very kindly by the Jews. So, and geographically, by the way, uh, to, to get <clears throat> from Judea to Galilee, the shortest route is to go through the area of Samaria. But you know what some, quote, uh, <clears throat> religious folks would do? We're not going to go through and have anything to do with the Samaritans. We'll go out and cross the river Uh, and go out into the desert and go north into what is now Syria and come down and visit Galilee. We're not going to go and have anything to do with those Samaritans. So Jesus always seeking to deal with uh, problems with people's religiosity that really is not honoring to him. The hero of his parable is the Samaritan. Because the Samaritan sees this guy and his heart pours out for him. And what does he do? He ministers this guy. He takes him to an inn. uh, And he pays out of his own resources uh, for the man to stay there for days at a time. Tells the owner of the inn, take care of him, gives him some money. Says, now, when I come back, if that's not good enough, uh, put it on my tab. I'm good for it. I'm going to take care of him. He didn't know this man. But he saw a need. And he met it. And so we see that in this regard, he did a good work out of compassion for this man. So the generosity is uh, a giving spirit of not only resources, but a desire to help people uh, is the nature of the Christian. That's what being a Christian is all about. Being hospitable in the name of Christ. That's what it is. We can't escape uh, this fact of what Jesus says about Judgment Day. And that those who are justified on that day, turn with me again to Matthew 25. we got to look at it. I know we have mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Look at verse 31 and following. Now, again, the reason I'm bringing this up, the household of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Paul said, were devoted to the ministry to the saints. Meaning, they wanted to minister Christ to fellow Christians. Now, of course, it wouldn't be limited just to Christians, but particularly Christians. And so we, we see that that's why we're mentioning this. And it's how on Judgment Day, how Jesus will recognize his people. It says, verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, And he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed and my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, here's the basis for being, having the accommodation of Jesus. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it unto me. Stop right there for a moment. He's not talking about, uh, this is not a work salvation paradigm. We're not saved by our good deeds. The scripture testifies that clearly. Our good works are not the basis for our salvation. The basis will always be the atoning work of Jesus done on our behalf by grace and mercy. It will always be the basis. That's justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But as the, the scripture says, as James brings out, faith is not by faith is not alone though we believe only in Jesus faith always always works itself out in good fruit always and that's what Jesus is mentioning <clears throat> the righteous prove themselves as being Christians by ministering to other people and i think it's really important that we understand it wasn't all those who cognitively said, well, <clears throat> I'm a Presbyterian, Calvinist, theonomist, post now No, that's not what he said. He said the basis, now, you know me, I believe all those things are really important. But the, the basis of the Lord Jesus' commendation is not what we acknowledge in our head, but it's going to be how we live our lives. That's the bottom line. It's whether we show the love of Christ. And that's what these people are, that's what the righteous are doing. Now, notice another thing that in being devoted, as Paul said, that the household of Stephanus was to the welfare of the church, these people on Judgment Day, did you catch the fact they're not aware of what they did? <laughs> Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? I, mean, I don't remember doing that. We don't remember any of this. And Jesus says, well, to the point that you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. See, the Christian doesn't always think about, well, I wonder what my reward is going to be in heaven. What kind of crowns or jewels am I going to get for doing good? No, the Christian just wants to do good and does it. And. In their ministry, now they may not they may be aware that they're doing it and it's pleasing to the Lord, but that's not the driving force. That's not the driving force in their life. The driving force is I want to be used of the Lord. I want to help people. And when I see a need, my heart goes out to them. That's why the Christian does it. There is real fruit. As Jesus said in John fifteen, he says Unless the branch abides in me, I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, you're the branches. Unless you, the branch, abide in me, you can't do anything. And then he goes on to say in John 15:8, By this you prove that you're my disciples, by bearing much fruit. And the bearing of much fruit is feeding the hungry, giving people drink when they need it, clothing uh, those who are in need, giving them shelter, Uh, Visiting them when they are in trouble and in prison, um, that is being hospitable. The the Christian is hospitable. So, even though good works are not the basis for our salvation, they are surely the fruit of one. And that's why the scripture says that, uh, as James says, I show my faith by my actions. Otherwise, he said, uh, just believing in Jesus or saying I believe is not sufficient. He says the demons uh, know that Jesus is the Lord and they shudder in fear. So knowing who Jesus is uh, doesn't change the way you live. You know, the first time I realized that was when I was in college and I was doing some campus evangelism and I ran across a person who said, uh, I believe in Jesus and all that, or, or he talked about how all the good things about Jesus, and during the conversation I said, "Well, wow, it's giving me the Christian. He says, no, I didn't say I was Christian. What do you mean? That? You just told me all these things about Jesus. He says, well, I know that, but I haven't given my life to Jesus. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, that was the first time it dawned on me, just this, Intellectual apprehension of Jesus. And some people know some things about Christ. They know the scriptures, but they, don't, they know in their heart, they don't know him. They don't know him, and they, they say they don't know him. And so, <clears throat> fruit will always flow out of it. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we have these commands in the scripture about uh, hospitality. Hospitality is one of the traits of a Christian. Uh, turn to Titus chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Titus 1a says, well, I'll bring it back up to verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid of gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now, they're going to say, well, I'm let off the hook because I don't intend to be an elder. (laughs) Uh, But it goes to show that one of the godly traits of these men is that they are hospitable. Now, lest we think that's only restricted to the elders of the church, turn with me to 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 9. 1 Peter 4, 9. Let's back up to verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know, being hospitable simply means just being friendly. Being friendly. And it's making people feel at home, in your home. Uh, So, in that regard, this is the command that he sets out for us. How does Paul say we should treat those who have devoted themselves, like Stephanus and Fortunatus, Achacus. He says, how should we treat these kind of men? Well, what does our text say? 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verse, uh, verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 16. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. He says you need to hold these people in high esteem. Those who have devoted themselves, remember the word devote, who have assigned themselves, who have committed themselves to ministering to other people. He says hold these people in high regard. He says when they came from the church, this delegation came from Corinth, my spirit was uh, uplifted. You ever been around some Christians by just the fact being around them, you just become more cheerful because just being around these folks lifts your spirit. There's a real godliness about them, and you just enjoy their presence. This was the type of delegation that ministered to the Apostle Paul. And he says, you have done Corinth well, uh, served them well, and even performed that which was even lacking in the church as a whole. Again, I like what John Calvin says in this regard. He says, But we must note that the people whom he thinks worthy of this honorable description are those who have dedicated their services and resources for the benefit of believers. So when you find these type of people, they are to be held in high esteem. Turn with me to Third John. The third epistle of John, near the end of the book. The elect to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church, and you uh, do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds when he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so And puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness. And you know that our witness is true. So... This passage corresponds exactly with what First Corinthians 16 says, does it not? That we are to be in subjection and honor of those who have devoted themselves to the ministry of others. And in this regard, they, these are people who have given themselves to the work of ministry. Not just creatures, but anybody that's out to do good for the welfare of the church. And as you turn back... <clears throat> These, clo- these closing, uh, <clears throat> we may say, admonitions to the church. He says, uh, he's, all these uh, saints like Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings. Uh, and then he says, <clears throat> in this, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. God, we're not used to that in our culture, are oh. But you know, I mean, it's an Eastern <coughs> culture thing, and it still goes on today. Uh, carryover. Have you ever seen uh, even uh, Middle Eastern men or those? They greet one another, they give a kiss up there on each side of the cheek. It's carryover from this. Now, yeah, in our culture, they don't give you a kiss like that. They're What are they going to think about this? But we have our counterpart a real hearty handshake, but better yet, a hug. We can say a hug. Christians to hug one another is a sign of that we care for one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. But the idea is. We are members of the same household. We are family. We are to love one another. We are to greet one another uh, with with loving kindness. And therefore, he says, that's how you ought to greet one another. But then he says, verse 22, really summarizes the Christian life. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord... Let him be accursed. Maranatha. What an interesting way to end his epistle to the Corinthians. But it it states it all right there. If you don't love the Lord Jesus, and I remind you, in loving the Lord Jesus, what it means to be devoted to him and to others. Because in being devoted to Jesus, you are devoted to others. That is what it means to love God. The scripture is very clear. It says, how can we say we love God if we do not love those whom we have seen? And therefore, that is the bottom line. And then he says, he throws in Maranatha. Well, the word Maranatha means the Lord come. Yeah, in my college days, <clears throat> we were going to be real spiritual, me and my other two buddies in our paint company we had. We went to get a license, and the lady at the business office in, at the courthouse says, What's the name of the company? We said, We're Maranatha. And she didn't hear me crazy. She says, Mary and Ethel, we can't call you that. <laughs> I said, No, Maranatha, the Lord comes, paint company. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you later how great that company was. <clears throat> but the thing the thing about it here is, why does he say anyone who doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed, Maranatha. Well, the Lord comes the revelation says, May the Lord come quickly. We see and, and end with this passage, we see what happens on judgment day. When Jesus comes, and mind you, Judgment Day is uh, the same as the second coming of Christ. We've learned that, haven't we? So what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back? Well, we enter Judgment Day. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Begin to read at verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. catch that? So when Jesus comes on that last day of human history, He descends from heaven with a shout, and his church is raptured up to be with him forever. We are ushered in immediately into the day of judgment. Uh, The nations will be gathered uh, at, at his presence, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And what we read in Matthew 25 will take place. And all those who have persecuted the saints down through history, You know, sometimes Jesus says we have to suffer. We have to uh, persevere through suffering. And sometimes Christians say, why do we have to suffer like this? When are the wicked going to get their due just desserts? Well, this is the day of reckoning. And Jesus says, uh, the scripture says, when he comes, he will pay the penalty of eternal destruction for all those who, who never obeyed the gospel. And all those who persecuted his saints will regret on that day for having done so. Because now the great judge has come and it is reckoning time. And the thing about it here is the saints will realize it was all worth it. It was all worth it. And on that day, we will be vindicated. Because again, the saints will receive the commendation because they lived uh, a godly life because they knew Jesus. And Jesus there in Matthew 25 says, Enter into the joy of your Lord, and he will say to the wicked, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And there is the payback time. There the wicked will receive the just consequence of their wicked actions, uh, but anybody who does not obey the gospel. I want you to notice here it says it's not just uh, the serial killers, uh, all those who are going to be sent to hell. Anybody who does not obey the gospel, of the Lord Jesus, that's who's going to hell. those who don't obey the gospel. What is obeying the gospel? Believe Jesus. Believe Jesus. Repent of your sins. Like we, I mentioned earlier when Ezekiel says to the preacher, as long as you tell people to repent and warn them that there's a dangerous thing to live a life apart from Christ, it says uh, there is much at stake in those who refuse to believe Jesus. Those who did not accept the gospel will be sent into everlasting destruction. And the saints will be vindicated on that day. So, being devoted. Being devoted to Christ as a preacher and as a saint. The preachers have got to tell you the way it really is. Uh, Not hold anything back, because to hold anything back is a disservice to other people. That's why there's got to be the kind of preaching today. We've got to return to the the old-time preaching, whereby people uh, were warned of the peril of not believing in Jesus. Not trying to compromise, not trying to water down the gospel, uh, not trying to distinguish between having Jesus as Savior, as Lord, but setting it out straightforward, what it means, because that is the way it really is. It is the way it really is. Jesus says, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters, and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. You will not be ushered into eternal glory if you don't sell out for Jesus. You have to sell out for Jesus. That's how he ends his epistle. And all who don't sell out for Jesus are accursed. That's the way it is. That's what preachers got to preach, and that's the way we need to live our lives. May the Lord help us. Let us pray.